1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel. And today I have the absolute pleasure of being in conversation with one of my favorite sociologists, Dr. Gauri Kumar, <laughs> the author of the brand new book, At Risk, Indian Sexual Politics and the Global AIDS Crisis. At Risk was published by Stanford University Press in July 2021. And uh, Dr. Vijay Kumar is assistant professor of sociology at Brandeis University, and this is her first book. Gauri, what a fantastic book. Congratulations. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk about this amazing book with you today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation.
1: Yeah. So let's start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became a sociologist.
0: Sure. So um, I think, you know, there's, a couple of ways you can answer a question like this, right? So um, th- there's the kind of existential, personal way, and then there's the kind of messy, practical way. Um, so I'll start with the ex- existential way, because I think for many of us, that's really where our sociological mm-hmm. <laughs> curiosity originates, right? Yeah. So for me, it was, you know, my diasporic experience, Um I grew up in a very white suburb of Boston, um, you know, feeling sort of very alienated in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. but I had a very close knit Indian community. I lived in a joint family and I spent a lot of my summers in India with my grandmother. Um, and I actually, um, you know, was uh, learning dance. So sometimes I'd spend the whole summer there, um, Going to dance classes, and then I'd be kind of at my grandmother's house, like bored out of my mind during the day while my cousins were at school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so I think, you know, hanging out uh, and being bored and just sort of observing were some Mm -hmm. of my first ethnographic experiences, and then sort of seeing, you know, the contrasts and convergences with my life Mm -hmm. in the US Um, and the sort of, you know, the, the class and caste privilege we had there. Um and the kind of racial exclusion we faced uh, here, I think um, were really sort of fascinating to me. And then, you know, as I grew older, I think I was really interested in observing, you know the shifts that took place post liberalization as Bangalore became this kind of global i t destination and how that sort of changed the city and changed the way. People around me in the U.S. talked about India and talked about Bangalore. You know, so that they're seeing that and seeing the nature of the relationships between these two parts of my life be transformed was Mm -hmm. was really interesting. And you know, I didn't have the language to understand what those political economic shifts were until I got to college. Um, But I was curious about them, you know. And so, um, so that's kind of you know the. I think more personal answer and, and, and so many of us are driven by those experiences um, and questions, but yeah, I mean, practically speaking, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do in college. I was all over the place. Um, And I was lucky enough to go to Brown where there are no requirements. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I just took all sorts of classes. So I, I majored in development studies, which, um, you know, I don't even know if anyone like, I study development studies. <laughs> studies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're, you're another uh, weirdo like me. And so, yeah, so development studies, um, I, I majored in comparative literature. Um, I had a minor in creative writing and I was pre med. I thought I was also going to be a doctor. So, you know, I had all these different interests. Hmm. Um, but I knew I liked to write, you know, and I, I had this vague sense that I wanted to do something global. Um, and I wanted to do something that had to do with social justice. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, by some kind of happy accident and luck, I ended up getting to go to South Africa with one of my professors to do some public health research. Mm -hmm. Um, And my first um, experience with research was actually this project. And I actually talk about this a little bit in the beginning of the book. So um, I I went to South Africa and worked um, with these amazing reproductive health researchers. And, you know, my first kind of published academic article was actually, you know, about the the effectiveness of the female condom and preventing um, S- STI transmission, you know, based on this research. Um, but while I was there, you know, it was. Um, it was the 10-year anniversary of the end of apartheid. And so there were all these conversations happening around me about sort of apartheid and post-apartheid politics. And, you know, it really became clear to me that that was the sort of backdrop to the public health work that I was doing and the sort of AIDS pandemic that was ravaging Mm -hmm. um, South Africa at that time. And so when I came back, um, I wrote my senior thesis on that political... um, context for women's health in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my first research project that was really kind of driven by um, my questions uh, and my curiosity. And, and, and that was when I knew that I wanted to be a researcher was sort of my experience doing that project. I knew I wanted to be a researcher, but I had no idea, you know, what that meant in terms of discipline, um, what that meant in terms of method or the type of research I wanted to do. So um, I, uh, and I did a bunch of other things in between. So I actually spent a couple of years working in NGOs. Um, I got a master's um, and then, you know, I applied to basically a mix of anthro and sociology programs and then just decided on a discipline based on where I had gotten in. And honestly, like before grad school, I had only taken one sociology class. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It was a great class. It was with Patrick Heller um, Mm -hmm. at Brown Mm -hmm. class called globalization and social change. Um, But, you know, other than that, I hadn't had much experience with sociology. So I really learned what sociology was and what American sociology was um, after uh, getting to Berkeley Uh, But I think that was really, you know, really formative for me, too, is that I actually kind of always have this, um, this eclectic approach to sociology Mm -hmm. and the boundaries of sociology. And, you know, I hope Mm -hmm. some of that comes through in the kind of um, the the intellectual influences that Mm -hmm. appear in my book, too.
1: Yeah, no, it certainly does. Um, And, you know, speaking about the the book more directly, uh, you say that it's an exploration of how. The global AIDS crises temporarily transformed the terrain on which sex workers, sexual minorities, and transgender people engaged the state, both individually and collectively. Um, and I really like this uh, this rather succinct summary of the book that that you lay mm-hmm. out early on. Um, so I was, I mean, you've just spoken a little little bit about this already, but like, what is the story of this book? Um, how did this research project emerge? Was it your dissertation? And you know, how did it go from being a dissertation to a book.
0: Yeah, thanks for that question. So yeah, I mean, I think when I started doing research in grad school, I I was initially interested in um, gender and globalization, and I actually, yeah. you know, despite the fact that I had kind of studied AIDS um, in undergrad, um, when I my when I did my master's project in in grad school, I I did a, a qualitative study of um, Young uh, workers at a BPO outside of Bangalore. And it was all about kind of how they relate to the global knowledge economy, their Mm -hmm. aspirations. Um and it was, you know, I mean, it was about how these young people were kind of adapting their aspirations to this very constrained environment, right? And, mm-hmm. and specifically how you know a lot of these young women kind of adapted their aspirations to, you know, the certainty of marriage, right? Uh, and uh, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of, you know, it, it, it was it, it was a story about neoliberal capitalism winning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I was really craving uh, an opportunity to, to study, you know, collective assertion, right, mm-hmm. and collective challenges um, to uh, to those same forces, right? And, um, you know, I had also been reading a lot of the literature in transnational feminist theory um, uh, and later kind of um, transnational queer studies. Um, about global institutions that always win, right? They succeed Mm -hmm. in co-opting radical politics. They discipline sexuality. They create these kind of aspiring um, uh, subjects. Um, Mm -hmm. They suppress social movements. Uh, you know their their white savior feminists or homo nationalist projects um, right. and I just kind of wanted something to, to bring me more kind of uh, hope I guess you know and I wanted to study um, uh, movements that mm-hmm. challenged these kinds of structures and and at that point you know and I was sort of t- transitioning from the masters to my dissertation I started thinking about uh, my work on AIDS mm-hmm. and um, You know, I had sort of followed um, AIDS politics in India just kind of from a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, And it occurred to me that this was an example of very marginalized people having this leverage um, within this kind of moment of crisis in which they were repurposing you know, international discourses, um, funding structures, donors, the state, you know, and in a way that, you know, it, it was it wasn't that they were kind of individually, creatively subverting them in everyday life, um, mm-hmm. but actually really collectively kind of engaging on this terrain of mm-hmm. the global AIDS uh, uh, field or what some have called the, the AIDS industry. Right, and so you know, you had um, sex workers (laughs) saying, "Okay, um, I'll do this condom distribution. I'll prevent HIV if that's what the funding is coming to do." But you know, you also need to, um, uh, you know, invest in uh, sex worker communities uh, and help uh, us build collectives that can stand up against police violence and provide housing and help our children go to school and. uh, and, and challenge kind of violent um, forms of exclusion from public spaces. And so, um, so I think that was, you know, my, what, what attracted me to this project uh, initially. And, um, and, and I also saw it as a really interesting way to understand the relationships between state, global institutions and social movements and really see all of them as kind of acting together in complex relation to each other. Um, and so that, I think, um, was what theoretically drew me to this project. Um, and I think it really, you know, it, it, it's about a moment of crisis, and in many ways, a very specific moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think we need to understand how very marginalized groups engage on the terrains of crisis and what the limits of that are, right. because right. we're increasingly living in periods of crisis, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Whatever kinds of crises they are. And that, you know, has become increasingly clear uh, in yeah. the last few years. But, you know, we could say that it's always been true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, thanks. That that was so interesting. And uh, even methodologically, the book is such a cool example of the power of ethnography in taking us across so many scales, right? So the book, as you put it, moves from global fields to the state, to organizations, to individuals. Um, And while explicating on this approach, you write that you changed the research design of your project after a brief stint of fieldwork, that it went from being a comparative project to one in which you follow the linkages between the various organizations and actors in the field of HIV prevention. So I have two questions here. One, could you tell us a little bit about how you conceptualize the field in your book? And two, could you tell us a little bit about your ethnographic approach and the methods you ended up using to do your research?
0: Sure. Um, So for me, I thought of the field, um, you know, there's so much literature in sociology about fields. Um, Mm -hmm. I was particularly interested in sort of some of the literature on global fields, right? So Mm -hmm. um, thinking about the kind of complex of institutions and actors at the global level, including nation states. Um, who are working uh, to uh, prevent or manage um, the AIDS pandemic, uh, right? But, you know, for me, and I think there are some uh, amazing studies that really kind of map out global fields, right? Um, But what I was interested in doing was actually looking at how, um, how the state and social movements relate to the global field, right? So, how do these engagements in the global field, you know, map on to um, how social movements engage with the state, right? So, you know, I think, and I think my ethnographic method is kind of best suited to that, to really understanding how those global engagements shape um, these political contestations, articulations uh, at the local, regional, kind of national um, scales. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of the the methodological aspect of this, and I think you know in a lot of ways when we do you know global transnational research it's kind of you know a theoretical as well as methodological uh, question and intervention. so um, you know, I uh, started out with um, a pretty uh, a grounded approach, in the sense, I, I I I sought out specific organizations where I wanted to spend my time. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically started off by cold emailing people, um, and then mm-hmm. I was really trying to figure out how I could position these different organizations. You know, I got permission to do kind of more long-term research in in this set of organizations, um, uh, and then I, I also went to a conference um, that was really helpful to kind of help me. It was the the sex workers freedom festival. So it was a, a national, actually global conference um, mm-hmm. of sex workers who were kind of connected um, with, the, with sex worker movements around the world. Um, but I think, you know, my methodological shift was starting to see um, the field as something that um, you learn about through tracing connections, right, rather than beginning with a bounded research site. So I had my you know, sites where I would show up every day and hang out. Um, But I was also doing interviews with people as connections emerged. So, you know, if I was in a drop-in center and someone came from the um, uh, local state agency that managed Um, relationships to CBOs, uh, then I would go interview that person, right? And then I would, you know, ask people, okay, well, where else should I go visit? Um, uh, Or who else should I talk to? So actually through that, I started to understand the relationships um, between these different kind of state, uh, non-state actors, you know, some of these Um, global institutions, donors, um, but through these very kind of specific relationships, right? So it wasn't an abstract sense. I wasn't coming in assuming um, that a specific institution was going to play um, an outsized role. And I think this is really important because I think a lot of times when we do kind of research that is at the intersection of scales we tend to overstate the importance of say global institutions on local politics right uh and i kind of tried to treat that as an empirical question right so what is the extent to which you know aids funding actually affected what this um uh, sex workers' organization did on a day to day basis, and how much of what they did on a day to day basis had to do with their relationship with a specific local police commissioner or a particular um, state uh, bureaucrat or um, a specific feminist group or Dalit group in their area, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, and it sounds it sounds messy, right? <laughs> Right. Um, but I did start to realize as I went through this process that I was able to map the field or kind of understand who the actors were in the field and how they were related to each other as mm. I proceeded with the interviews and people started recommending me to the same people over and over again. So I started mm. to have a sense that I had, you know, understood how these different, um, institutions and organizations were related to each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's really
1: interesting. And I also chuckled a lot when um, I read this part in your in in, in in the book where you write about what it's like to study the post-colonial bureaucracy, you know, like uh, how much of a maze it is. So uh, as someone who has also faced very similar situations of, I don't know, being completely disoriented within the state apparatus, I was curious to know how that was like. Um, how did you negotiate being, you know, from a U.S. university and... Um, how was it placing yourself in these kind of very varied contexts?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, and I've written about this um, in an article in in world development about the kind of concept of community and this sort of idea of authenticity. Right. So, you know, within HIV prevention programs, I was studying um, a lot of times when I would talk to people, especially in the bureaucracy, they would say, Oh, you know, this isn't the real work. The real community is over there, you know, mm-hmm. or you go over there to study the real, um, the, the real grassroots work. You'll find it in this place, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, when I read um, Nayanika Mapu's amazing book, Mm -hmm. Um, paper tiger. She has a really similar kind of description in the beginning about, you know, going to one office and then they say, no, 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 the real work happens in this other place. Right. And so, you know, and I found that really kind of resonated with my experience Uh, Mm -hmm. And then kind of in the process of going from place to place, you Mm -hmm. know, and it really is kind of physically going from one office to another. You know, a lot of times I was just waiting around. I always had a novel with me. I'd just sit there and wait, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in that process, you sort of start to get a sense of, you know, how are these different institutions related to each other? And also, you know, who, um, uh, what different roles they're playing and kind of. And, and what's getting lost in translation along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, now getting to the
1: contents of the book itself, uh, the book starts with an analysis of uh, India's AIDS crises within the global AIDS field. I was very intrigued by the, the specter of Africa and the African ec- epidemic shaping India's response to the crisis. So, could you tell us a little bit about how the imaginations of uh, Africa mattered to determinations of risk and understandings of transmission in India?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things that—and this is actually something that I kind of added to um, my book later in the process—and um, mm-hmm. the reason I did this was that I realized, you know, by the time I was doing fieldwork, the idea that. Um, the 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 risk groups um, of note were these three groups: sex workers, um, what were called men who have sex with men, which is obviously a very broad and problematic category, um, and IV drug users. Um, you know these are the risk groups, right? And this was kind of accepted knowledge, uh, and 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 everything else kind of ensued from there. Um, and I realized I needed to actually kind of historicize you know, how did these become the groups? How did this become the uh, accepted understanding of how the epidemic response in India should look? And, um, you know, and part of this is, of course, a post-colonial legacy, right? So there's a long history of... um, uh, regulating prostitution uh, as a way of uh, regulating the threat of kind of contagious disease, which, you know, so many amazing feminist historians have written about, you know, mm-hmm. the anxieties around race and sexuality that were at the heart of you know, the Contagious Disease Act, for example. Yeah. Um, and, and how those those moments actually kind of, of sex panics actually solidified the, these categories of the prostitute. Um, but you know, by the time the uh, by, by the time I was studying kind of the early AIDS uh, epidemic, there was that history. But there was also this relationship between India and the rest of the world, right? Um, uh, that 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 public health uh uh, uh researchers within India, as well as media, you know, or civil society, you know, they're all trying to figure out. Okay, there's this. There's this. Pandemic happening uh, in the West? Is it going to come here? Is this going to affect us? (laughs) Right. And so I started kind of um, cataloging uh, public health articles and uh, news articles from that period, right? So, like from the mid 80s. Um, And, you know, what I found was that, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the discourses centered on. Um, both uh, on positioning India in relation to both Africa and um, the West, right? So, Mm. you know, and and in the early phases, uh, it it looked one way, right? So it was, okay, well, in the West, um, there's uh, uh, a lot of this sexual immorality, there's homosexuality, since there are no, there's no homosexuality here in India, Age is not going right. to be a problem here, right? right. Um, but then um, there's this shift, right? So, and and then, and in that earlier um, moment, there was kind of a, a like a sense of third world solidarity. So, if Africa is mentioned, it's mentioned in the context of, you know, um, these Western powers are trying to kind of um, uh, bring their idea of public health and impose it on those of us in the third world in Africa mm. and Asia, right? Um, but later on, you know, as Africa starts to have this raging AIDS pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's this new set of fears, right? Because now it's okay. Well, if if um, there can be an uh, explosive AIDS pandemic in Africa, maybe that means there can be an explosive AIDS pandemic here, right? So mm-hmm. then the concern becomes: How is India different from Africa, right? So now mm-hmm. it's okay. Well, you know, we have a more um, sexually conservative, um, society than Africa, right? And we are more technically advanced than Africa, right? So, so here, you know, so I, I, I mapped out, you know, in this, uh, uh first tra- uh, empirical chapter of the book, kind of how these, um, these imaginaries of both the West and Africa. Uh, shifted over this period. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, these were also very concrete circuits of public health knowledge, right? So there were actually studies done in Kenya, for example, that were referred to in uh, deciding to focus on um, sex workers as a major mode of transmission in India. Uh, And a lot of the same researchers were working across these contexts, right? So they were actually taking with them, you know, certain assumptions, and vocabularies and moving them across into a new context.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you write so compellingly about how the strategies for HIV prevention were rife with contradictions in India, owing to the state's incapacity as well as its criminalization of marginalized groups. You argue that these tensions led to two kinds of strategies for managing the crisis One that relied on a logic of containing and isolating risk, while another emphasized the need to incorporate high-risk groups into state programs. So could you tell us a little bit about these strategies and how uh, the perhaps unintended consequences of these strategies shaped state-citizen relations?
0: Yeah, so, you know, early on, right, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the state's response was you know, essentially violent, right? right, and coercive, right? So the response was to detain anyone who was considered to be um, a risk. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for example, you know, in one uh, really important case, you know, there were um, over 800 people um, women who were brought from Bombay to Chennai on this train called Mukti Express, uh, and they were detained in Chennai, and they were kind of in these very abusive conditions, and they were forcibly tested for HIV. Um, there's the um, well-known case of Dominic De Souza in Goa, who was arrested right when he was um, uh, found to be HIV-positive, uh, and, you know, so this was kind of the early response, right, to kind of crack down on the people who were considered to be a threat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, you know, the but but what happened almost immediately was that there was activism, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the key activists in this uh, period was Shamla Natraj, right, from Siap, mm-hmm. who, you know, worked for the release of sex workers who were detained in Tamil Nadu. Um And, um, you know... The, so there was a shift after this initial period to a more kind of strategy, what I call it, uh, call a strategy of incorporation, right. So working Mm -hmm. with community groups to kind of bring them on board within the public health response. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so instead of detaining sex workers and later on, um, sexual minorities and transgender people, um, uh, the idea was, okay, we'll work with the community, right? Uh, and they will do the HIV prevention work. Um, and, and this created a lot of conflict, right? Because you have organizations who are actually sort of receiving funds from uh, one set of agencies within the state, from NACO, um, and, and, and also being uh, arrested and are still criminalized Mm-hmm. You know, and um, regularly attacked by other state agents, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, so this actually became a way of kind of outsourcing um, some of the violence associated with doing HIV prevention, right? So community groups are the ones who are kind of doing this work, and it's in, and, and the way that I talk about it. And the book, it's kind of a way of very conditionally incorporating these groups, right? Saying, mm-hmm. you know, this is a temporary suspension of sexual morality. Um, you uh, for for as long as you're important to stopping this um, disaster from taking place, right? So they're incorporated into some parts of the state while leaving others largely unchanged. And then after the crisis is over, we'll all go back to normal. You'll be back to being kind of marginal in society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, So this is the shift that took place and the kind of contradiction that I think is at the heart of the book.
1: Yeah, that's, again, uh, really interesting. And I had never thought about uh, many of these, uh, you know, discrete events in this this coherent manner. So thanks for bringing together such a compelling narrative. Um, But my favorite chapter was uh, the chapter titled Risky Cells, in which you write against the singular narrative of victimhood and uh, instead show with much empathetic astuteness how your interlocutors found new opportunities of self-making that was opened up by the AIDS crisis. Um, So one of the things that was really interesting was how uh, the aspiration to becoming smooth is one self-transformation project that was uh, quite dominant in these narratives. So I was hoping you could tell us how the HIV prevention programs created conditions for these self-making projects and these self-transformation potentials that, um, that persisted
0: yeah um yeah thanks i'm glad you like that chapter that's my favorite chapter too <laughs> um, so yeah i mean there's been a lot of writing about um you know hiv programs in india you know from people who are involved in it as well as kind of academics studying it um mm. and you know there are a couple of different and you know obviously i'm 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 caricature- caricaturing because um there are lots of complex debates happening with um within this area um but, you know, if you read like a Gates Foundation report or something, mm-hmm. one of the things that um, you'll often see is kind of the idea that HIV prevention interventions empowered people, right? So that the groups who were considered to be at risk were empowered by being part of these programs. Um, and then there's this other, you know, activist critique, which, um, uh, which is really important, right? Saying... You know, actually, this wasn't, um, you know, the, the HIV programs were not responsible for the empowerment. And in fact, all they did was kind of discipline people, um, you know, they created new inequalities, um, they excluded people who didn't kind of fit within the caste and class norms of, you know, respectable um, HIV prevention spaces. Uh, and so I, in this chapter, was interested in kind of making sense of that through my ethnographic data. And I think I, you know, I come out somewhere in the middle, but probably more on the side of the ladder um, to um, to talk about how people are navigating these spaces. Um, there were some very specific kind of infrastructural conditions created by HIV prevention, right? So one of the things where there were spaces, right, there were drop-in centers where people could hang out, right? And that's actually a pretty um, transformative thing, right? So this is a place where people are um, hanging out in a different kind of way. Um, they, um, you know, people, you know, so when I was in drop-in centers, people would have dance parties, they were playing games, watching TV, people would be cooking. I remember mm-hmm. there was somebody who used to, um, like, dry apla, um, like, on the, the roof of the building, mm-hmm. to sell. Right um you know so like there were just you know it was a space where people were working and living together Mm -hmm. um and they were learning you know ways to behave way to classify themselves way to name their sexuality um uh, uh and they were also kind of uh engaging on this terrain of um you know learning how to be what i call smooth right so a lot of people would say and they they often these would be English words kind of interspersed into Canada. So, um, you know how to be more decent, how to be more smooth, mm-hmm. uh, instead of being rough, right? Learning how to dress differently, how to talk in front of, um, you know, uh, a, an audience. Um, how to be part of a meeting, how to show up on time to a meeting. All of these kind of little things that people were learning, um, which you know. Uh, also meant, you know, uh, learning how to be quieter in some settings and also how to talk more assertively in other settings. Right. So, you know, I talk about selective openness, learning how to be open about your sexuality in the right context, uh-huh. um, but managing it in other contexts. So these are kind of some of the things that people talk to me about learning kind of the transformations they described going through. Right. Um, uh-huh. and I, in, in that chapter, I focus on both, um, transgender and cisgender women. um, And and they described, you know, actually remarkably similar kinds of transformations, obviously playing out in very different ways and in different kind of worlds Mm. and trajectories. But um, they, you know, they described learning how to occupy these kind of um, office spaces over time. Uh, And it did include a loss, right? So it entails kind of uh, a loss of more fluidity, right? You know, a lot of people learned how to describe their sexuality with a really specific kind of rigid term, right? Uh, and uh, instead of kind of having a more uh, fluid understanding. And, and there were people I interviewed who, who described that as a loss, who kind of felt limited by that, um, mm-hmm. uh, by those kind of epidemiological classifications and terminologies. Right. Um, but, you know, at the same time, those terminologies kind of give access to political spaces um and give the basis to, to make claims right so so you know I, it's a very kind of double-edged um process mm-hmm. um that i'm trying to make sense of in this in this chapter um but i really kind of try to center how ultimately it's these kind of individual negotiations with this space and it's an opportunity and a space for for self-making that you know, both involves uh, uh, some, some kind of uh, losses and as well kind of some opportunities and transformations and sort of ways to uh, articulate aspirations in a different way.
1: The chapter on quantitative models of HIV prevention was also very powerful. And um, you argue that within the scientific community, quantification was key to repackaging the Indian AIDS response. And in the process of quantification, AIDS in India was severed from sexual politics. In other words, quantification made the AIDS response apolitical. So could you tell us a little bit what you mean by this and the implication that the imagining of data as numbers had on the global scale?
0: Yeah, so, you know, when I, um, when I was thinking about the structure of the book, mm. I really didn't want to write a story that was all about Um, what the donors did and how powerful the donors were, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I did realize at some point that I do have to address that, right? Because Mm -hmm. um, the donors did have a really important role in representing what had happened in India in the AIDS response in the global field, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in particular, um, the Gates Foundation um, did a huge amount of research on the HIV prevention programs that they were a part of, right? Uh, and what I, uh, and intentionally, you know, the, this chapter comes late in the book, right? Because the Gates Foundation arrived uh, to the AIDS response in India quite late, right? So a lot of these groups, organizations, state agencies had already sort of built um, a model of AIDS uh, response um, and HIV prevention, before the Gates Foundation arrived, and then the Gates Foundation kind of came in and brought in a whole lot of money and scaled everything up and did a ton of research and documentation, right? So mm-hmm. um, Ashok Alexander, who was the um, director of Avahan in India, um, uh, in his book, A Stranger Truth, he actually writes about how um, this was the most well-documented uh, public health, pro- one of the most well-documented public health programs in the world. There were 300 peer-reviewed journal articles about mm-hmm. this HIV response in mm-hmm. India, right? So, they, um, so there was a lot of research going on and a lot of kind of attempt to quantify what community organizations had already been doing, right? Mm-hmm. So some of these activist groups, um, for example, had really pioneered something called crisis response, which was um, like, Uh, Basically, if somebody uh, is uh, being harassed or detained in the police station, somebody from the organization will go and help them get out, right? Or if somebody Mm is in some kind of uh, crisis situation, right? These kind of everyday crises that would happen to sex workers and sexual minorities and transgender people when they're kind of on the street. Um, And so, you know, once the... um, Uh, this large scale program comes into place. Now the peer educators have to document how many crisis interventions they did every week. Right. And there are studies of, you know, how does crisis intervention affect um, HIV prevention? Right. So, you know, I see this as kind of part of this larger logic of, of um, humanitarian donors. Right. So, you do an intervention, you evaluate it, and then you move on, right? You're not there to kind of stay and build relationships or build mm-hmm. leadership, right? So, um, so you're you're you 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 want your data, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this very research-oriented logic, right, to to these large-scale interventions, uh, even though on the ground, you know, the peer educators, the community organizers, you know. Uh, organizations with you know all different political orientations um were skeptical of the 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 documentation expectations right uh Mm -hmm. and this was not experienced as a valuable aspect of work on the ground and there were activists who protested the targets um that um the the HIV prevention program was setting, you know, after the Gates Foundation was in India. But, you know, if you look at like the the, the peer review journal articles that were published out of, um, uh, out of this process, a lot of it is about numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So um, how uh, this was a very quantitatively driven response, how data was really at the heart of it. So the Gates Foundation kind of saw that as their signature uh, mm-hmm. contribution to the response and so what I tried to kind of show is that this was a very conflicted process um, and that you know these community organizations um, already existed and were doing this work before the donors came in to quantify it but then mm-hmm. when they exported it to other places it was the numbers that kind of took pres- precedence it became the numbers that were sort of seen to be the core of the program instead of what came after the program
1: Yeah, super, uh, super interesting. Um, Towards the end of the book, you come back to this question of the relationship between India and Africa, specifically Kenya, uh, by walking us through the collaborative efforts in the global AIDS field. Uh, The material material was so rich in how it gives us a glimpse of the sociological thinking that uh, your interlocutors engage in while making claims about other societies. So how did those engaged in HIV prevention work in India and Kenya compare the two countries vis-a-vis each other? And what do these comparisons tell us about the possibilities and the problems of South-South mm-hmm. collaboration?
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, this was, um, you know, uh, one of the parts of the project that was, um, you know, in a lot of ways, that it, t- it took me the longest to kind of make sense of this, right? Because mm-hmm. um, in, in some ways, you know, basically, I heard a lot of um, hierarchical language, right? These kind of racialized hierarchies that people would use to talk about the differences between India and Kenya, right? So um, uh, a lot of comparisons of state capacity, right? The state, the the Kenyan state um, as more beholden to donors compared mm-hmm. to the Indian state. And actually, you know, you know, some of this, you know, I looked at the data on kind of Funding, for example, um, and you know this is based on the reality of the fact that in Kenya, um, AIDS brings in a huge amount of foreign uh, funding uh, mm-hmm. that that outpaces uh, funding for the, the the rest of the health sector, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of it comes from PEPFAR, which is a you know a Bush era program that has you know very kind of. Um, conservative political orientation compared mm-hmm. to India where, you know, AIDS was, um, you know, there was a lot of funding from the Gates Foundation uh, and from other donors as well, um, from, from European donors. Um, but um, it, was, it was never kind of as exceptionalized um, as in Kenya. So there are some differences there that I kind of try to map out but what i was really interested in was how people narrate these differences right so people mm-hmm. saying india is ahead kenya is behind you know india is uh, is where ken uh, is is where kenya will be in 30 years uh, mm-hmm. and also you know our uh, comparisons about um, political culture, right? Indians are more argumentative. Yes. Kenyans are less argumentative. They're more accepting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenyans are more sexually conservative. Indians are more sexually tolerant. You know, so these are mm-hmm. kind of ideas of sexual modernity. Um, uh, and and I'll say also, I mean, the study is really of this relationship, right? So it's, it's not so much of you know, whether any of these narratives are um, based in any kind of reality, right? But it's about how these narratives are playing out. And I heard them from both, um, you know, Kenyan and Indian interviewees. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I also saw was that, you know, people who were um, making these comparisons were also kind of reworking them in a lot of ways and finding ways to collaborate. Across them. So they were using some of this hierarchical language, but they were also kind of working uh, in interesting ways to to build solidarity, right? So this is a context where donors were more interested in adopting HIV prevention practices from India Mm. than they were in talking to local Kenyan activists who right, had mm-hmm. already been doing this work for years right and mm-hmm. um, so um, so within this context you know and and there were like you know officials from and not just Kenya you know several African countries who would um, go to India to learn about HIV prevention programs Um mm-hmm. But then, when they would go, you know, one of the things that I heard from some of my interviewees was that people would go on these trips and they would come back and say, you know, the main thing I learned from my trip was that I don't have to listen to the donors, right? Mm. Um, or one of the projects that um, happened while I was in Kenya was um, this uh, sex worker organization um, bar hostesses empowerment and support program. Um, mm. They decided to do a documentation report of all of the sex worker activism that had been ongoing in Kenya. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they wanted to kind of make the argument to the Kenyan AIDS authorities that, you know, okay, so you're interested in working with, you know, what you call key populations. Now, here's all the work we've already been doing. Can we actually build on this? And they actually, um, you know, did this in collaboration with um, Indian HIV prevention um, staff, um, Mina Mm -hmm. Seishu, who's a sex worker, Activists from India actually kind of came and did the research um, for this, and you know, they put out this report. You know, so, 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 this is kind of for me an example of how, even within this kind of um, hierarchical framework that was put in place by some of these um, ideas of knowledge transfer or learning from India's successful model, there mm-hmm. were also moments of, um, you know, building solidarity um, across. Um, across activist groups. Yeah,
1: and in a way it comes back to the the, the questions of uh, India and and Africa in the, that you addressed in the first chapter, so it was a really nice way of coming back a full circle towards the end of the book. <laughs> um, so as a final question about the book, I was wondering if you wanted to speak to the interventions this book makes in the sociology of state and sexual politics. In particular, I would be curious to know what are the texts that this book drew its energy from, and how do you think about its contributions to ongoing conversations?
0: Yeah, thanks for this question, um, and I love the question about the books that um, yeah. uh, I draw my energy from because there's so many, <laughs> so yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think overall, you know, what really drove this for me was sort of, you know, when we study global crises, global donors, global mm-hmm. feminist projects, global uh, queer projects. Um, uh, you know, part of my goal with this was to look at how these moments um, play out on existing political terrains, often in mm-hmm. this very kind of um, uh, uh, localized ways, right? And how um, activists who are building, you know, very specific political alliances in their context are able to work. Um, uh, uh, within and beyond the, in, the, the frameworks that are that are imposed on them by donors
1: mm-hmm. and the
0: state. And to really kind of think about the state and donors and social movements or civil society as kind of three different um, entities that, that operate together in complicated ways. So, you know, in that way, like, I'm very indebted to some of the literature on just dis- disaggregating the state, right, seeing the state as this kind mm-hmm. of complex, um, actor with conflicts within it conflicts without it um, that has right. to be understood in relation to civil society as well as some of these global institutions yeah. Um so uh, and, and I think it is a feminist project too because you know there's there's been a lot more work on uh, and attention to this kind of project of disaggregating the state in sociology recently but this is work that you know feminists um and feminist sociologists have been doing for a long time right, right. Uh, and so i think you know uh for me you know scholarship on sexuality in the state was really yeah. um useful um for making sense of some of these contradictions within the state and the, and the way the state relates to um uh, actors and institutions outside of it um yeah. so yeah i mean in terms of um some of the literatures and work that um uh, that the book draws its energy from, you know, one of the books actually that really helped me early on, uh, mm-hmm. that I read in grad school, was Millie Thayer's uh, transnational feminism book about mm-hmm. kind of the relationships between uh, feminist groups in Brazil and how they have this kind of relationship of, you know, inequality but also solidarity across this uh, mm-hmm. rural uh, feminist kind of grassroots movement um, and this uh, middle class uh, urban NGO. Right. And mm-hmm. so, uh, thinking about those relationships within the context of transnational feminist uh, funding was really useful for me. Um, really inspired by Jyoti Puri's work on, um, sexuality and the state and kind of, you know, the, the, the feminist and queer critiques of the state, um, mm-hmm. that, um, her work, uh, is part of. Um, and also another, um, book that really helped me think through, um, the relationship between India and Africa was Antoinette Burton's Africa and the Indian Imagination, um, mm-hmm. which kind of historicizes some of these, you know, complex relationships of both hierarchy and solidarity mm-hmm. uh, between um, India and, you know, a, a few different kind of um, sites in Africa. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Uh yeah and and then of course you know some of the work on global fields so Monica Cross's book The Good Project kind of helped me think about the global field so I was putting a lot of things together, right. um in this um in this book um and, and I think in a lot of ways you know I think of it as a, a methodological intervention too you know a way of thinking about global institutions from mm-hmm. um um from this uh. uh perspective that's rooted in political assertions uh, from marginalized groups, right? And, and, and in that way, you know, it's like uh, uh, going back to that, you know, Michael Burvoy global ethnography project, right? That really kind of inspired me um, in graduate school. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing I wanted to say actually was that, you know, I learned a lot from the writings of activists. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as I was building the theoretical framework for this. and mm-hmm. um, I think it's really important to kind of um, uh, think about some of those writings as, you know, making theoretical interventions, right? Yeah. So Some really yeah. kind of pioneering work that was done um, by activists who were working in these spaces, um, uh, Less Than Gay, by um, AIDS, Babe, Virodi and Dolan, uh, Women in AIDS, Denial and Blame. This is kind of an early report that they put out um, mm-hmm. about kind of um, some of these early um, uh, definitions of risk, right? Even that idea that the category of risk is placed on the others of the nation, right? Is that that mm-hmm. argument is made in that report? Um, Shuba um, Chasing Numbers, Betraying People, which is really a critique of quantification in HIV mm-hmm. prevention mm-hmm. programs. Um, There were these fact-finding reports done by human rights activists in Karnataka by um, People's Union for Civil Liberties that were about kind of policing, violent policing of sexual minorities and transgender people in sex work. Um, And they were documenting what was happening on the ground, and they were also generating theory um, and generating critiques. And there there are several other um, um, uh, reports and and um documents that i refer to and so in my introduction i really tried to kind of cite those alongside the kind of academic um uh, uh writings that i cited mm-hmm. because i really they were both you know equally important to me in building yeah. a theoretical framework for the book yeah i mean i
1: absolutely uh respect that so much um okay well Before we end, I would love to know what you're working on now and what can we expect to read from you in the near future?
0: Sure. So um, (laughs) I have um, a few different things um, that are happening at once and they're all at different phases of development. But I'll say something about my um, collaborations that I have ongoing first. So, um, you know, I have a, a collaborative project with Shubha Chako um, and Subhadra Panjshanadi and we've sort of been writing together on various topics for a long time. So um, mm-hmm. right now we're working on a project about um, sex workers, sexual minority, and transgender um, organizations uh, across the AIDS response and COVID-19, so kind of looking mm-hmm. at how the how they um leveraged resources um and navigated covid-19 um mm-hmm. and also kind of you know the activism that they have been doing um um across these periods um so right. so that's one project we're doing a project on um aging and sex work so looking mm-hmm. at kind of sex workers and how um growing older kind of presents a new set of opportunities and constraints and also um, you know, a new sort of set of um, vulnerabilities too. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so those, those are two projects. Um, I'm also working with Muttarada Krishnan on editing uh, this uh, amazing volume, mm-hmm. um, The Sociology of South Asia, which is really um, an effort to kind of pull together some exciting new work by junior scholars in the sociology of South Asia, but also think about kind of how um, to, you know, decolonize sociology, bring North American sociology into conversation with um, sociologies produced uh, in and on South Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also been working this past year, one of my favorite projects I've done this past year is working with this um uh, wonderful transgender activist um Akhay Padmashali who mm-hmm. um uh, I worked with her this year on writing her autobiography wow. um so through a series of interviews which uh, I did with uh, a couple of undergraduate students mm-hmm. uh, at Brandeis and we um uh, and so we put together um you know this book and it's um it's actually been um uh, also released in Canada already uh, and, it's gonna be, uh, yeah, and it's going to be out uh, hopefully next year with Subban, um in English. Um, so mm-hmm. that's uh, a really exciting project that has given me a chance to kind of uh, uh, engage in a really exciting way. So I have, you know, um, uh, these collaborations going on. Um, yeah, in my kind of work um, outside of collaborations, I'm really interested in thinking about kind of the dynamics Of love and romantic relationships Mm -hmm. uh, within a transnational context. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I've started to think about kind of how to do a project on diasporic love and romance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm teaching a course on the sociology of love in the fall to kind of um, pull together kind of what's the sociological literature on love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm hoping to kind of build that into. uh, to a project on uh, love in the South Asian diaspora.
1: Wow. I mean, all of these sound so cool and I can't wait to read um, all of the projects uh, in the making. And I particularly love the one on love. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you ever need an interviewee, please uh, uh, I, I will volunteer my
0: myriad <laughs> <career> experiences. <laughs>
1: But you know, Kauri, thanks so much for taking time out to chat with me today about your fantastic a new book. It's um, it's really such an accomplishment and major, major congratulations. And I'm not just saying that because I've always already admired everything you do, but <laughs> it's, it's great. And I'm sure it's going to be really well received and it's going to pick up all the admiration and uh, attention it rightly deserves
0: well thank you so much for engaging so closely with the book this is the first time i've actually gotten to uh talk about it since it's been out so um yeah. i really enjoyed um our conversation
1: yeah well thanks and take care and
0: stay safe thank you too